You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. Today on the Solomon's Corner Book Club, we discuss chapter one of our new reading, The Captive Mind, by, get ready for your Elmer Fudd impression, Sejuo Miwosh. Um, we're just going to call him Milos, though, for the duration of this podcast, because I can't talk like Elmer Fudd with a straight face. What is the pill of Murdy Bing, though? What the hell is a materialist dialectic, and why does it lead to hell? Finally, what is it about Milos and the other communist survivors that make their readings painful to read? Hint, it's not that their ideas are complex, quite the opposite, really. Thanks for joining us this morning. We'll discuss this and more on today's Solomon's Corner Book Club. Before I dive into this, we've got some promotions that I need to uh, get out there. We have a 50% off code for newsletter subscribers for The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Dr. Carl Truman. It's a great book. Carl Truman was in the documentary, What is a Woman? So if you want to get 50% off of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, make sure you go to Solomon's Corner forward slash book club, Solomon's Corner forward slash book club, and click the subscribe to the book club newsletter. You will then get an email that gives you a promo code to use on Crossway's website. Uh, the other thing is, is that when you subscribe to the newsletter, is that we have 10 giveaways for Andrew Clavin's new novel, A Strange Habit of Mind. And I am reading it right now, should have the review up later this week. So if you are interested in supporting you know, authors like Andrew Clavin, make sure you pre-order your copy. But know that we also have 10 to give away, and so that you can give it as a gift to someone else if you win one of our books. But we wanted to support him. It's a really good book. It's definitely pushing the limits on the cultural narrative. I can tell you that right now from page one, so you will not want to miss that book. So if you do not like giveaways, then go pre-order it. If you do want to get a copy of yourself, subscribe to our newsletter. All right, without further ado, let's dive into Schedule Milos. As we discussed yesterday, Schedule Milos has already provided us with a takeaway from his book, mainly to examine yourself. In the preface, he describes his expertise as a writer, and so if you're young and exploring ideas, what field do you wish to influence is a question you should ask. If you're already established in your field, you should also take Milos's approach, regardless of where you are in skill or is irrelevant. Are you a writer, an engineer, a doctor, lawyer, priest, stay-at-home parent, a dog in the doghouse, just kidding, aka husbands. It doesn't really matter what your vocation is. What matters is whether freedom reigns in your vocation. If freedom is dead or being stifled, then you have a moral obligation to revive, defend, and propagate freedom in your field. This is what the soldiers and knights call their duty. If you take nothing else away from this book, meditate on the ways you can make your field more free, the way Milos did, and describes in The Captive Mind. That said, we come to our first chapter, though, The Pill of Murdy Bing. Now, Murdy Bing is based on a novel that Milos cites in the early pages of the chapter, and it's really a, a, a material thing that brings about a spiritual transformation in the life of the, of the patient. It's presented by an author named Witkiewicz, and uh, again, this is a Polish guy, so difficult to pronounce, but the Murdy Bing is a life philosophy in pill form. In Witkiewicz's novel, Milos says, quote, a man who used these pills changed completely. Again, Milos is, is the, describing the pill and its effects in Witkiewicz's novel. So when a man used these pills, he changed completely. He became serene and happy. 
The problems he had struggled with until then suddenly appeared to be superficial and unimportant. He smiled indulgently at those who continued to worry about them. Most affected were all questions pertaining to the unsolvable ontological difficulties. Ontological is just a fancy word for reality. A man who swallowed Murdy Bing pills became impervious to any metaphysical concerns. Metaphysical and ontological are often interchangeable. More and more people took the Murdy Bing cure, and their resultant calm contrasted sharply with the nervousness of their environment. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing a group of people who are deciding to just live and let live. If, you know, communism isn't as bad as you think it is, you know, stop worrying about everything. So for those who have been fighting the culture war, taking stands in their work, with their family, in their church, or in politics, this will be your first realization that Milos understands on a deep level the psychological and spiritual struggle in man when he is confronted with the new faith of communism. New faith is a term that you'll see in the book. Throughout, he is referencing communism. That's what it means. And as we'll see later, that is not uh, an, a, a mischaracterization or hyperbole. Communism is a religion. The type of man that this attracts is the elite. Think of your lawyers. And what I mean by this is, is the Murdy Bing pill is, attracts a certain kind of citizen. And it's the elite, the, the, the middle class or the upper middle class. Think of your lawyers, your academics, doctors, clergy, artists, etc. Those that are revered by their constituents, i.e., client, or uh, for example, clients, students, patients, disciples, admirers, respectively. These professions are the ones that first swallow the Murdy Bing pill because their desire is to remain in their status. They do not want to lose their status. They do not want to lose their harmony with society or their appreciation by the masses. So. Milos says, quote, People in the West are often inclined to consider the lot of converted countries in terms of might and coercion. That is wrong. There is an internal longing for harmony and happiness that lies deeper than ordinary fear or the desire to escape misery or physical destruction. Murdy Bing is more tempting to an intellectual than to a peasant or laborer. For the intellectual, the new faith is a candle that he circles like a moth. In the end, he throws himself into the flame for the glory of mankind. We must not treat this desire for self-immolation lightly, end quote. What we find in Milos is that the new faith has, has a sacramental view of the world. A sacrament is just an outward sign of a spiritual truth, to summarize it. Those that participate in the new faith have given up their souls in order to preserve their place in society. So they participate in the material order, and in doing so, reveal their spiritual state, meaning they've given their soul to the state. While Murdy Bing is a metaphorical pill, it is ironic that COVID-19 vaccines, not a metaphorical pill or, or treatment, had a similar effect on our society. Those that didn't follow the science, i.e. the new faith, or the self-proclaimed symbol of truth, Dr. Fauci, he literally did describe himself as a symbol of truth in an interview, found themselves in the crosshairs of the new faith's governmental power. Based on this reading of Milos, we can see what would happen to a man or woman who did not take the Murdy Bing pill, i.e. communist ideology, or in our own time, the COVID ideology. Work would fire you, your friends would distance themselves from you, your family would judge and reject you. How could they not? To them, you are a pariah, a rebel, a defector, an enemy of the state. The scary part about all this is relevance to our own time. When we talk about this in our own time, though, it's important to note 
that we obviously don't have gulags. We don't have, you know, people being uh, murdered and brutally uh, terrorized en masse. Um, so when we talk about this for our own time, many people would say, well, no, I didn't, I didn't, you know, reject my, my friends or my family or any of this kind of stuff. I just said I wouldn't see them for a long time. <laughs> so the COVID-19 vaccine policies had all the makings of a Murdy Bing pill. Those that didn't follow the science, a mantra from the COVID overlords, were cast out. Those who took a stand for their jobs were not cheered by their friends and colleagues, but instead had to find new allies in the exiling that took place when one took such a stand. But Murdy Bing is not a vaccine or an actual pill. It is more powerful than that, even more powerful than the ideology of the, the COVID-19 vaccine. Murdy Bing is a philosophy of the new faith. The government leaders are the leaders of this faith, and the liturgy or practices of the adherents is determined by their leaders' desire to control history. But power is ultimately achieved by the elite classes in our society going along to get along, or as Milos says, to belong to the masses. Murdy Bing 2.0 in our own time is now to disassociate with anyone who is pro-life, accepts traditional or religious definitions of marriage, and in general disagrees with leftist policies across the board. So how do we determine if someone is in the clutches of the new faith? Those who are afraid to lose approval of their work, their license to practice, and the respect of their colleagues or family have swallowed the pill. They fear not physical harm, but exile from their communities, family, work, church, etc. Man as a social being requires society in order to obtain his full potential. Thus, it is not surprising that the threat of exile would be avoided as if it were a threat to one's nature, because it is a threat to one's essential needs, his community. We find here the clause of the dialectical materialism. That's what Milos calls it, the clause of the dialectical materialism. And the political conditions that it creates and seeks to implement. Milos says, quote, Dialectical materialism creates a social and political condition in which man ceases to think and write otherwise than as necessary. He accepts this must because nothing worthwhile can exist outside its limits. Herein lies the clause of dialectics. The writer does not surrender to this must, merely because he fears for his own skin. He fears for something much more precious, the significance of his work. Anyone gripped in the clause of dialectics is forced to admit that the thinking of private philosophers, unsupported by citations from authorities, is sheer nonsense. If this is so, then one's total effort must be directed toward following the line, and there's no point at which one can stop." End quote. So now we come into what is dialectical materialism. So we've talked about Bernie Bing and the fact that people just go along to get along because they don't want to lose their status. It's not that they're afraid of being hurt or being maligned. They're worried about being considered no longer in the club of society. And this terrifies them to the point at which they're willing to become what Milos says, schizophrenic. In one hand, they have the communist ideology, but they can't forget their past, and so they become the conscience for their brethren who won't take the Murdy Bing pill because they remember their former life, but now they've adopted the new faith and become the Puritans or the legalist communists that try to invoke more patience into the Murdy Bing regimen. But this happens through a philosophy called dialectical materialism, an idea that Marx and Frederick Engels promote. This is going to be a tough segment, I'm not going to lie to you. Dialectical materialism and dialectics in general as a philosophical subject are just difficult. 
but it's very important for us to kind of do a brief survey of what this idea is, because if you want to read and understand any of the communist thinkers, you will see this coming up all over the place because it was used in all the communist ideas. In fact, I'll give you this quote twice throughout this discussion, but even Frederick Copleston, a philosopher of uh, a history, of, uh, an author on the history of philosophy, says, the point is that it is the Communist Party which has saved Marxism from undergoing the fate of other 19th century philosophies by turning it into a faith. So this philosophy itself is difficult, but it's understood by the survivors of communism because they lived it. And so oftentimes there's this disconnect between what Frederick Engels and, and Karl Marx actually wrote and their survivors actually describing it as they lived under it. And so this can create a difficulty when you're researching what is the dialectical materialism, because Marx and Engels describe it as this great fluffy idea of the social revolution, and then you read somebody like Milos, and you're like, well, that sounds like a really stupid idea. And you're like, how, how could anybody believe it? Well, because they don't have freedom, and the Murdy Bing pill makes them adopt the dialectical materialism, even though it's absurd. And that's why Copleston, at the beginning of his section on Marx, says the philosopher of history is, or the, the historian of philosophy is in a tough spot when it comes to Karl Marx and Engels because their ideas basically suck, but they had so much influence, you still have to talk about them. So they don't stand on their own merit. But let's dive into what Karl Marx and Frederick Engels actually promoted. So in summary, dialectical materialism is the poisonous ideas of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. They are preserved not on their philosophical merits, but by brute force through communist dictatorships. And that's referenced later on uh, by Koppelson. In order to understand Milos and other communist survivors, we must understand what they mean when they frequently reference the dialectical method. For example, dialectics, materialist method, the method, dialectical materialism, etc. These are all terms that you'll see throughout any sort of communist author's uh, rendition of their survival story. To understand this, we must first consider the idealism of Christian thinker George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, or uh, William he George Hegel, or Hegelian idealism. Hegel promoted the idea of reality as a process, dialogue between two contradictory ideas. He's influenced by Plato's dialogues. He sees this as a method of dialogue. He tries to approach this not as two persons arguing, but two ideas that are mutually exclusive and contradictory. So what we mean by that is when you negate or when you take the opposite of material, you obviously have immaterial. When you take the opposite of immaterial, you have material. And so there's this back and forth of, well, is this material or is this immaterial and this back and forth of, of negation. So for example, idea, immaterial, and nature are immaterial material reality as contradictory thoughts in Hegel's idealism. It is this dialogue between material and immaterial that forms the process of reality. So for Hegel, process is a reality. For Hegel, reality is the process, not an end. The idea was pure thought, while nature was the negation of it or opposite of it. When we negate something, that's just a fancy philosophical way of saying, give me the opposite. So the opposite of truth is false. The opposite of false is truth. The opposite of material is immaterial. The opposite of immaterial is material. And so on and so forth. So when we negate a truth claim, we assert not merely an unrelated claim, 
but the opposite of that claim. For example, Solomon's Corner is a great podcast, is a statement, a truth claim. If we wanted to negate this statement, we would say Solomon's Corner is a horrible podcast. And we just got a one-star review, so I know somebody out there thinks this. It's the dialogue between these two statements that leads to one, a synthesis, to, leads to a synthesis of the truth by negating the negation. Hang with me, okay? The initial statement, Solomon's Corner is a great podcast. When we say the opposite of that, Solomon's Corner is a horrible podcast, we then can say, well, what's the opposite of the horrible podcast statement? And so the opposite of this could be Solomon's Corner is an excellent podcast. In negating the negation, we come to some claim that is neither the first claim, Solomon's Corner is a great podcast, or the negation of Solomon's Corner is a great podcast, mainly Solomon's Corner is a horrible podcast. This is called synthesis. You take a statement, take its opposite, and then somewhere in the middle, you find the synthesis. But how does this apply to reality? Hegel has basically given us this kind of abstract discussion that, let's be honest, is pretty freaking confusing. So let's see how Engels approached this. So in Copleston, we, and by the way, for those who are actually interested in doing a deep dive on this subject, I will tell you that the internet articles and YouTube videos are horrible on this subject. They oftentimes only give you the abstract. They don't give you any concrete examples. Um, but Frederick Copleston's uh, History of Philosophy, Volume 7, has the best description on Karl Marx and Frederick Engels' dialectical materialism, and it's only like 20 pages long. Highly recommend. There's my plug. Um, but Engels, and, and I got this from Frederick Copleston, uh, this example here. Suppose we have a seed. It negates its shell, meaning it casts, its off, it casts off the shell and it begins to sprout. In negating its shell, it is capable of growing into a tree now which is a new thing. The tree then negates the seed, meaning the seed no longer exists because now it's a tree. A tree has taken the place of the seed. This tree will have several more seeds that then negate the tree and they fall from the tree. They then negate their shells and synthesize new trees. Thus, reality is a process. And in this example, the process produces more trees, which can then negate the seeds, and the seeds can negate the trees, and so on and so forth. We have this process of flourishing. Always striving for the ultimate, but never quite getting there. This is Hegel's idea of a process between the spiritual or pure thought and nature. But it's applied by Engels and Marx in the material world because they cast off the immaterial ideas of Hegel, as we will see later on. The way that this would apply in a Marxist idea, though, would be something like this. We must negate the wealthy, and then in negating the wealthy, they'll become poor. And when we negate the poor, they will become something better than wealthy, maybe even a god. So the next Christian thinker, and I think it's important to note that these are Christian thinkers, and really Marxism comes out of a Protestant tradition that did not have good checks and balances on their theologians, that's not to say that I think that Catholics are right. It's just to say this is a consequence of us not making sure we keep our theologians in check. So the next Christian thinker that comes along is Ludwig Feuerbach, who is a kind of a disciple of Hegel, and he's a Christian. And what he does is he naturalizes Christianity using Hegel's dialectic. He says, basically, well, if, if 
God became man, then why do we need God anymore? And so let's apply the dialectic of, well, what's the opposite of of man? Well, the opposite of man would be nature. And if if you're not a man, then you wouldn't be able to make that leap. You wouldn't be able to self-alienate yourself out of nature. And so he says that basically man and nature are all that there there is. And man will eventually become the supreme being. And so what he did was he used Hegel's idealism to naturalize Christianity, this is Feuerbach, to make God in man's image, and ultimately, through dialectical methods, arrive at a natural religion where man is the supreme being. What many don't realize is that Christianity, specifically Protestant Christianity, like we just mentioned, had a role in the birth of Karl Marx's thought. I know that I discovered this in in researching this, this podcast. The dialectical method was not at first a materialist idea, but a theological and philosophical idea found in idealists, i.e. Hegel and Feuerbach. Feuerbach took the Hegelian idea and applied it to man and nature. Man is dependent on nature, but in order to objectify nature, meaning make it something for his purposes, he must first objectify his own essence. He must become self-aware of himself as distinct from nature. In other words, he must negate nature. Religion can serve as a catalyst for this, and in the scriptures, Feuerbach finds his justification. And so we're going to turn to Koppelson's uh, description now and, and look at how Feuerbach actually used scripture to justify this leap. Koppelson says, quote, For man has first to objectify his essence before he can become aware of it as his essence. And this is Koppelson analyzing Feuerbach's thought. In the highest or most perfect form of religion, namely Christianity, this objectification reaches the point at which it calls for its own overcoming. In the doctrine of the incarnation, quoting Feuerbach, the Christian religion has united the word man with the word God, and then one name, God-man, thus making humanity an attribute of the supreme being. And this is where Copson ends the quote of Feuerbach and continues. What remains is to reverse this relation by making deity an attribute of man. Once man understands that God is a name for his own idealized essence, projected into a transcendent sphere, he overcomes the self-alienation involved in religion. And the way then lies open to the objectification of this essence in man's own activity and social life, or the state. Man recovers faith in himself and in his own powers and future. End quote. By the time this idea reaches Karl Marx, it is considered a natural religion, meaning the the Hegelian idealism is now a natural religion. There is no need for God anymore. It then has only to be a natural progression from the deification of man to the deification of the state. Copleston, again quoting Feuerbach's thought, which will be recognizable as the seed in Marx, describes the state as the new God. Copleston says, quoting Feuerbach, The state is the essence of all realities. The state is the providence of man. The true state is the unlimited, infinite, true, complete, divine man, the absolute man. And that's the end of Feuerbach's quote. Copleston continues analyzing it. From this it follows that politics must become our religion, though paradoxically atheism is a condition of this religion. Feuerbach's transformation of idealism into materialism and his insistence on overcoming man's self-alienation as manifested in religion prepared the ground for the thought of Marx and Engels, end quote. So now we return to Milos and the materialist dialectic. While there are spiritual shadows within this post-Hegelian idealism, the primary scope of, its, scope of its application is history. Recall what Milos says about the Murdy Bing pill. Quote, Murdy Bing is different. 
It lays scientific foundations. At the same time, it scraps all vestiges of the past, end quote. The Marxist dialectic, or a materialist dialectic, a term Marx or Engels never used, believes that through man's control over material reality, which is history for Marx and Engels, he can lead man, the species, there is no room for individual in materialist dialectics, to his final end. Quote from Milos, Dialectical materialism, in the Stalinist version, both reflects and directs this transformation. It creates a social and political condition in which man ceases to think and write otherwise than as necessary. A young Polish poet admitted to me, My own stream of thought has many tributaries. I barely succeed in damming off one when a second, third, or fourth overflows. I get halfway through a phrase, and already I submit to the Marxist criticism. I imagine what X or Y will say about it, and I change the ending. Milos continues, Paradoxical as it may seem, it is this subjective impotence that convinces the intellectual that the one method is right. That's the dialectical method. Everything proves it is right. Dialectics. I predict the house will burn. Then I pour gasoline over the stove. The house burns. My prediction is fulfilled. Dialectics. I predict that a work of art is incompatible with the socialist realism and will be worthless. This is negation. Negate the art. Then I place the artist in conditions in which such a work is worthless. My prediction is fulfilled. For Marx and Engels, and, and by the way, those are two quotes kind of juxtaposed, uh, page 12 and page 15, just for context. For Marx and Engels, there is still a shadow of the immaterial, but it is only because they have to have a place in their philosophy for mind or consciousness. And remember, they're not great philosophers. They really are propped up by dictatorships. But for them, in general, Karl Marx and, and Engels, all is material, especially history. History is the objective force pushing man forward. If we can control this force, we can control man and make him achieve his full potential. Koppelson says of the dialectical method, The dialectical movement is not a movement of thought about reality. It is the movement of reality itself the historical process, and the negation of the negation involves the positive occurrence of a new historical situation in which man's self-alienation is overcome in actual fact and not simply for thought, end quote. In short, the history of dialectics was the belief that spirit and matter were in constant debate, a dialogue or a dialectic. This process was the nature of reality for Hegel. For Marx, the dialectic must not merely be speculative, though. It must be a revolution of the proletariat. If reality is a historical process, and only material reality is primary, then the controlling the superstructures of history would be controlling food, labor, property, and everything else that is material. It is to control the flow of history if we can control these things. In other words, the invisible hand of the market must take on flesh. It must become the God-man, and this is obtained only through the apparatus of the state. Ironically, Marx rejected idealism, yet it is this idea, Marxist dialectics, that he believes must inform the flesh of the citizenry and produce not speculation, but revolution. Copleston says, quote, Further, criticism by itself is in any case inadequate. We cannot change society simply by philosophizing about it, says Marx. Thought must issue in action, that is, in social revolution. For philosophical criticism raises problems which can be solved only in this way. 
It must leave the plane of theory and penetrate to the masses, and when it does so, it is no longer philosophy, but takes the form of a social revolution, which must be the work of the most oppressed class, namely the proletariat. End quote. In closing, we see that chapter one of Milosh's Captive Mind is a powerful example of the spiritual power of a materialist philosophy. It makes man in its own image. Ideas are material, and our societies are the material that takes their form, which is manifested in the actions of humanity. Marx's philosophy is not a good philosophy. Even Copleston states that. It's only around still because communism turned it from a philosophy into a faith, which we read earlier. Milos presents us with a powerful word picture for our own time, an angel with scars or a beautiful demon. And the question is, which will we choose? As he describes this intellectual struggling with which one he ought to choose, Milos writes, Now knowing that he, the intellectual, must enter a gate through which he can never return, he feels he is doing something wrong. He explains to himself that he must destroy this irrational and childish feeling. He can become free only by weeding out the roots of what is irretrievably past. Still, the battle continues. A cruel battle. A battle between an angel and a demon. True. But which is the angel and which is the demon? One has a bright face he has known since his childhood. This must be the angel. No, for the face bears hideous scars. It is the face of the old order of stupid college fraternities, of the senile imbecility of politicians, of the decrepitude of the Western Europe. This is death and decadence. The other face is strong and self-contained, the face of tomorrow that beckons. Angelic? That is doubtful. End quote. We must decide, each in our own way, how to live. We must recognize that, as Milos points out, the new faith does not desire for private philosophizing. If you are here listening to Solomon's Corner and wondering what to do about the coming storm of competing ideologies, economic factors, and ominous terrors, then the first thing we should look at is the scars on the angel's face. To do this, we must become good thinkers. We must be willing to see our scars and forgive them. Then we must carry the baton of life forward into the storm with truth in mind and pen in hand and embrace the storm. A time of dark providence is upon us, but as we know from the psalmist, darkness and light are the same to God. It is his light that guides our thought and inspires our pens. If the new faith desires us not to think, then I intend to do just the opposite. This is my negation of their negation. If you want me not to think, then I will think. I hope you will too. I'm Daniel Roberts for Solomon's Corner. Keep thinking.